If I have direct evidence and I'm conscious of it and it looks like it's working, I think that's probably sort of one of the, the key mechanisms of the, the placebo effect. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 86 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Darwin Guevara from Michigan State University about his research exploring how placebos sometimes have the power to reduce markers of emotional distress, even when people are honestly told that they're receiving a placebo rather than an active drug. Here's Darwin Guevara. My name's Darwin Guevara. I was born in the Philippines. I moved to the United States, to San Francisco, when I was 10 years old, and I received my bachelor's in psychology from San Francisco State University, where I worked with Ryan Howell, who studies uh, well-being and personality. Then I moved to Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan, where I worked with Ethan Cross. And now I'm a postdoc at Michigan State University, where I worked with Jason Moser. And I got interested mostly in emotion regulation because of a bad breakup. So I went through a really bad breakup. And when you go through a breakup, you have tons of really, really negative emotions. Uh, you go from anger to sadness to distress to hopelessness. So you, you, you hit a spectrum of really bad feelings. And I had a really difficult time dealing with it. And then I had a buddy who went through a similar breakup. And he recovered in two weeks. And this baffled me. Here I am struggling with this thing and it's, you know, it's taken me substantially longer, I think maybe 10 times as long. And there's my buddy who goes through the same thing and he recovers in two weeks. And so I thought that the difference between me and him was he's better at emotion regulation. And so I wanted to figure out what made him different from me and if that difference can be taught. So that's how I sort of got interested in emotion regulations because it's kind of a cliche thing to say, but I was just bad at it. And I've seen people who are really good at it. I'm trying to figure out how they're so good at it. In episode 65 of Parsing Science, we spoke with Luke Chang from Dartmouth College about his research into socially transmitted placebo effects through which patients pick up subtle facial cues which reveal their doctor's beliefs about how effective a particular medical treatment will be. Darwin's research examines the placebo effect from a different angle, investigating why, when some people are given a placebo and they know it's a placebo, they still get the psychological and psychobiological effects of the placebo. To set the stage, we asked Darwin to remind us of what the placebo effect is and how our understanding of it has evolved over time. The placebo effect is a, a genuine psychobiological effect based on the brain's response to an inert treatment and the therapeutic place in which it takes place. Right? So that, I think, is the standard definition of placebo effect. But I do think that one of the key mechanisms is this feeling that something worked. If you could capture, like, oh, it worked, I have direct evidence in my body that I'm consciously aware of, although there are placebo effects that you're not consciously aware of, but we're going to skirt off that, that topic for now. But if I have direct evidence and I'm conscious of it and it looks like it's working, I think that's probably sort of one of the, the key mechanisms of the, the placebo effect. And so back in the day, they would just try out different types of procedures and different types of substances and you sometimes would get beneficial effects. But 
what typically happens is that your body heals itself and that gets misconstrued that it came from this object. And so that's mostly a placebo effect also. And like you expecting to feel better because of some sort of invasive procedure is mostly a placebo effect also. So for example, surgeries, there's sham surgery that occurred where people go through all of the steps of a surgery, including anesthesia and cutting you up, but without the actual theoretical uh, surgery that's supposed to heal you, those tend to produce large placebo effects also. So sometimes you give someone an expectation and, you know, their life confirms it somehow. And I think the the big thing here is you need self-evidence. Self-evidence is so convincing. It's kind of why astrology is still around. (laughs) If I said, oh, you're a cancer, you're going to meet someone who you'll find very attractive. And then you go out in the world and you meet someone you find very attractive. I bet that that convinces you a little bit more that, you know, astrology is true. In a wide variety of applications, the placebo effect is of interest to psychologists and health practitioners alike. And while classical conditioning and expectancy theory are two well-known mechanisms of it, questions remain regarding how and why placebo effects work. Up next, Darwin elaborates on what is known about the similarities and differences between alternate explanations of placebos. In the paper, we talk about expectation-based, but there's also conditioning-based placebos. But the expectation-based is when people just try to convince you that this is probably going to work. And so they tend to work together. Like, for example, if I give you an expectation that if you take these placebo pills, it's going to reduce your stress for today. And so I gave you that expectation, right? And then you actually take the pill and then you notice that it does reduce your stress. Now you've created an association. Even though initially it was an expectation, now association principles take place that produces more placebo effects down the line. It's, it's both mechanisms working eventually in the long run. Now, we differentiate it mostly from a manipulation standpoint. Expectation-based placebos in the lab is when I try to convince you that something is going to work for a certain condition, in this case, stress. I'm trying to induce some sort of expectation in you that this thing is probably going to work. Right? So that's an expectation-based placebo. A conditioning-based placebo, and when I say it's a conditioning-based placebo, I mean that they manipulated conditioning principles somehow when they administered it. And as far as I know, it's hard to do this in a non-deceptive placebo context. Although there's a paper that came out recently in pain reports where they do what's called pharmacological conditioning, and they give you an active medication. And then they pair it with a non-deceptive placebo or an open-label placebo, and they give you both of those. So now it just pairs it with the active medication. So they gave people uh, opioids for pain, and they gave them a placebo with the expectation that it's going to work, but they also pair it. And using that approach, it induces strong placebo effects. And what it does is it reduces pain, but it also reduces the amount of opioids that you have to take. Yeah, so that's a behaviorally consequential effect. And the way they tend to do this in the lab, though, is they would apply some sort of cream on your arm. And they tell you that I'm going to apply the same pain intensity on your arm that I did before. But what they really do is like they turn it down. And you don't know that they turn it down. So you believe that it's working. So they give you an experience of efficacy deceptively. 
So that's the condition as well. Across two experiments, Darwin and his colleagues set out to determine if placebos administered without deception can reduce both self-reported emotional distress as well as a neuromajor carried out via EEG-derived event-related brain potentials. Doug and I were interested in what led Darwin and his colleagues to investigate if non-deceptive placebos, when participants know that they are receiving a placebo, may lead to differences in their emotional responses to stressors. When we looked at the literature, a lot of the uh, results were showing null effects in the non-deceptive placebo world, where domains that is not responsive to expectation-based placebos. So, for example, um, there was a group of people that tried to test it on, does it increase wound healing rates? If you look at the deceptive placebo literature, it shows that expectations doesn't really work on wound healing. So maybe we're not detecting psychobiological effects because we're not looking at domains that are responsive to this. And since I'm an emotion regulation researcher, I thought emotions would be sort of the best place to start because uh, there's tons of studies to show that expectations robustly influence affective or emotional experiences. So we, we went with that, with that assumption. We looked at a psychobiological measure of emotional intensity. It's called the late positive potential. And the late positive potential tracks really well with emotional intensity. If you're feeling some sort of intense way when looking at a, an emotional stimuli, in this case pictures, uh, then the amplitude of this thing is larger compared to if you were looking at a, a neutral stimuli. So one of the main goals of the project was to provide evidence that non-deceptive placebo effects were genuine psychobiological effects. And that's mostly sort of in this broad context of if we're going to use this thing eventually, and we need to provide evidence that it's more than response bias. Because the current literature suggests that it, it might just be response bias. Especially if you tell people, if I give you this thing, you might feel better after. Right, So you're sort of um, cueing your hand of, of what you want to happen. And so the concern is, are people just telling us what they want us to hear? And this is an old issue from the placebo literature also, right? So people for a long time thought the placebo literature or the placebo effects were just response bias also until we started seeing the effects in, in psychobiological measures. So this was an issue that popped up in the non-deceptive placebo literature. And we thought that in order to advance this, you need to be able to demonstrate it. And we wanted to do that in a domain that we thought was robust to expectation-based placebo effects. As Darwin mentioned, he and his colleagues' experiments involved exploring whether a non-deceptive placebo would affect participants' experience of a highly arousing picture viewing test, as he explains next. The set that a lot of uh, emotion and emotion regulation researchers use is from the International Affective Picture System, which is a collection of pictures. The idea is they're standardized and uh, you can induce a different set of emotions with them, not just broad negative affect. The ones that we use are supposed to induce sadness, fear, and a little bit of disgust. So for example, in the disgust pictures, you, you often see mutilated bodies. Uh, for fear, you often see like a person about to get hurt or something like that. And for sadness, it's typically someone crying. 
And these are some of the ways that you induce emotions in a, in a laboratory setting, especially if you want to look at multiple trials of events. So we use these pictures. Now, the neutral pictures, they're mostly neutral. So sometimes they're pictures of inanimate objects. Sometimes there's you know, pictures of plants and mushrooms and stuff. And we intersperse them with the negative pictures to sort of give you a break so that you don't habituate to each negative one and you just don't expect negative pictures to keep coming. The idea is these things are supposed to be steady throughout. It might induce, you know, slight negative arousal, but not not too much. To determine if there were psychobiological effects from their non-deceptive placebos, Darwin and his colleagues not only measured both the participants' subjective judgments of their emotionality, but also monitored the electrical activity in the brains of participants. They focused on a particular pattern of activity known as the late positive potential. As Doug and I were unfamiliar with the paradigm, we were curious if it's a region of the brain or something else. It's not a brain region. It's an event-related potential component. It's, it's called positive because it's a positive deflection. It's typically found in central parietal sites of a, an EEG cap. It tends to move forward to more central regions as, a, as, a, as you look at the stimuli. They did a bunch of validation studies in the early 2000s, maybe even earlier than that where they show emotional pictures and they see that looking at emotional pictures that, that make you uh, upset or give you some sort of negative emotion increases the amplitude of this thing. And it increases it to the extent that uh, however long that stimuli is, is presented. Now, the funny thing is you, op- you also get the same thing for positive stimuli. So if you look at erotic pictures, you get the same amplitude. So we know that it doesn't measure valence of the emotional picture, but it measures sort of the arousal or the intensity that's associated with it. Now, the emotion regulation people took this thing and they're like, okay, let's see if this late positive potential is modulated by different types of emotion regulation strategies. And so that's how we know uh, that it's modulated by distraction or by this thing called positive reappraisal. And that's why we ended up using this measure is because it's robustly uh, influenced by different types of emotion regulation strategies. Prior to studying the psychobiological effects, Darwin and his colleagues first had to determine if they could consistently induce the desired psychological effect with the non-deceptive placebo treatment they had planned. This involved participants reading one of two articles, getting a saline nasal spray as the placebo, then viewing a series of pictures that induced emotional responses such as fear and stress. In their first experiment, participants were asked to self-report their emotional responses to the pictures. Ryan and I asked Darwin to expand on the design of this initial study. In previous placebo studies, you actually had a medical practitioner, someone who looks the part, give the information. And we knew that we would be limited by undergraduate students running undergraduate students. So that's why we went with the articles, because we really wanted to convince people that this is a this is a thing. And so we wanted to augment that and offset a little bit of the non-medical setting. It was, it was a proof of principle that this manipulation could work. And, you know, it did, which is which is great. And so what we found out is that you could change people's mind with article readings. It also showed us that it works on emotional experiences, which wasn't sort of a, a huge we. I sort of suspected that it would already based on other studies and based on what I understand about emotion regulation, it seems like a safe bet to know that it was going to work on emotions. The big thing was showing it across more objective measures. 
In their second study, Darwin and his colleagues essentially replicated the first, but this time using EEG monitoring to determine if their non-deceptive placebos attenuated the amplitude of participants' brain activity. Given that there are a variety of EEG devices available for researchers, and that the data they provide is continuous throughout the experiment, Doug and I wanted to hear how Darwin analyzed the data from this experiment. So you have an EEG cap on. It's like a swimmer cap, essentially. We use a 64-channel EEG cap, so there's a bunch of electrodes attached to the EEG cap, right? And these electrodes measure faint electrical signals in your brain. And the LPP is mostly situated, if you look at the head map, imagine that you're looking down on top of a person's head and they're facing forward. And imagine that the little dots in the head map are electrodes that are measuring electrical activity uh, that's associated with looking at the pictures. And then you can see that we break it down by one second or a thousand milliseconds in this case. Uh, so you have uh, the first, the first has one second, two second, three second, four second, five second, right? And the general idea there is um, if the amplitude is getting smaller, then it turns from red to blue, right? Which means that it's becoming cooler. So less activity there, which the way they were interpreting it is it's less emotional distress in this particular case. And so what you see is as you move forward in time, you see that it's indexing less emotional distress in your brain. And you see that, you know, there's a lot of frontal activity that's happening. So we didn't include this in the paper, but there's some data to suggest that non-acceptable placebos regulate your emotions with minimal cognitive effort. Ryan and I followed up by asking Darwin about what the EEG data was able to tell him about these psychological responses to non-deceptive placebos. We'll hear what he had to say after this short break. Thousands of conversations about scholarly content happen online every day. At Opmetric, we track a range of sources to capture and collate this activity, helping you to monitor and report on the attention surrounding the research you care about. Do you know who's talking about your research? For a free, visually engaging and informative view of the online activity surrounding your scholarly content, visit altmetric.com slash products. Now back to passing science. When we left off, we'd asked Darwin what he and his colleagues learned through their second study, an EEG-based examination of people's responses to emotional distress when receiving a non-deceptive placebo. EEG is terrible at spatial location, so we actually don't know where this thing is happening, but it has great temporal resolution. But we know a lot of the sites that's associated with the late positive potential and central parietal sites. So just the top of your head, slightly at the back of it. So this is where the largest activity for the late positive potential, this is the largest place that you could actually see it. So the second study was mostly to show that it led to genuine psychobiological effects using this event-related potential called the late positive potential. So we did the same procedure, just added EEG a little bit also. What we also did is we changed it into two blocks instead of one. So now instead of getting one nasal spray, they get two. So we upped the dosage a little bit. What's good about EEG also is that it's inherently, it seems very technical. It definitely increased the, uh, the perception of it being more uh, medically legit kind of thing, right? And so the, the research assistants were actually called research technicians, and that's how they referred to themselves. And the research technicians all wore uh, medical garb. They had fake glasses on. There was a secondary experimenter who uh, assisted the first experimenter to sort of up his uh, authority 
a perception of authority. I think the actual setup really helps with uh, perceptions of authority and, and legitimizes the procedure, which I, I'd imagine is similar to why you get large placebo effects in fMRI studies, because they're taking them to this big magnet that looks very medical. And so we show uh, it's a similar paradigm, except we don't ask them about how they're feeling. And there's a specific reason for that is because that sometimes when you ask people to introspect about how they're feeling, it actually reduces their negative emotions. Uh, it's work by Matthew Lieberman at UCLA, it's affect labeling. And so we just showed pictures and measured their brain activity and without any intervening steps of introspection. And so, yeah, I mean, at, at the end of it, what we show is that this was surprising is that you modulate both uh, neural activity from neutral pictures and negative pictures. So typically in emotion regulation studies, you don't modulate the amplitude from neutral pictures at all. You only modulate it for uh, the negative pictures. But in, in, in our study, you get both. And so this was surprising. And then we, we looked back at the literature and you know, it seems to be consistent with some study that was published by Benjamin Meyer and uh, Raphael Kalish group. So they published a paper on deceptive placebos in 2015, where they show an overall reduction in um, reactivity. And you can see that from skin conductance response, which is a measure of emotional arousal in this case. And they replicate that finding in 2019 up next, we'll hear what he and his team learned, as well as how his colleague and co-author, Tor Wager, a distinguished professor in neuroscience at Dartmouth, helped inform his understanding of what may explain what was going on. In study one, we get the effect in self-report for negative pictures, but we don't get it for neutral pictures. So neutral pictures are rated just as negative in the control group as in the non-acceptable placebo group. You really only get the non-acceptable placebo effect in the negative images, where uh, they rate it lower than non-acceptable placebo compared to the control group. Now, in study two, we modulate the LPP activity for both neutral and negative images. And we had to explain this to see why this was happening. Now, other deceptive placebo studies have shown sort of this discrepancy. I didn't have a good answer for a while. And then Tor Wager, he pointed out that if you look at your measurement, from study one, it's a measure of valence, how negative or positive something is. But the late positive potential is a measure of arousal, intensity. And so I think from Tor's standpoint, he suggested that, you know, you're just measuring different aspects of the emotion. You might get an overall dampening effect on arousal, but when you measure the valence of it, you might not get an overall effect there. And this interpretation is consistent with getting an overall effect uh, for neutral or negative stimuli on skin conductance response, which is a measure also of arousal, and you don't get it for the self-report. Now, the tricky thing is, in the 2015 paper, the first study found the self-report effect in neutral stimuli and self-report, right? So for a while, I thought it might just have to do with, with the anchors in our study. So uh, we use a one to nine anchor and they use a uh, zero to a hundred anchor, right? So maybe you get more variability. So you give it more chance to reduce itself. The other thing too, is that it just measures different aspects of it too. So the self-report effect measures it four seconds after picture was presented, 
right? So I'm kind of like thinking back a little bit four seconds ago, how it made me feel. But the LPP measures online activity as you're looking at these pictures. So those are the possible ways this discrepancy could be happening. Ren and I closed out our conversation with Darwin by asking him what words of advice he might have for other emerging researchers, regardless of what field or discipline their science might be in. I think I would say try your best to connect what you're studying to people's daily life, right? And this is also the philosophy of my teaching. Uh, When I teach social psychology or research methods, I try to connect it to your everyday life. And that engages people more. And and I think that makes your science uh, more important to people. You know, if I say, like, I know how to help you get over your breakup. And here are some of the scientifically based strategies that, that, you know, that have shown to do that. That's how I approach this thing, too. And now I'm becoming more and more interested in trying to make it more applicable and relatable to people's daily life. And so I think I'm lucky in that what I study relates to people very easily. Right. When I tell them I'm an emotion regulation researcher, they all have emotions. They know what it feels like to feel that and they know what it feels like to try to manage it or regulate it somehow. I, I think I'm lucky is that it's easy for me to make a connection between what I study, what they experience in daily life. They can relate to it. That was Darwin Guevara discussing his open access article, Placebos Without Deception Reduce Self-Report and Neural Measures of Emotional Distress, which he published with Jason Moser, Tor Wager, and Ethan Cross on July 29, 2020 in the journal Nature Communications. You'll find a link to their article at parsingscience.org e86, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the episode. We hope that Parsing Science helps you hear what you might not have the time to read. And if you're new to the show or just missed a few of our recent episodes, then head over to parsingscience.org to check out our entire catalog. There, you'll find our conversation with our former guest from the previous episode, Kaisha Jennings, about the wildly popular meme, Hot Girl Summer as well as the episode before that, in which we spoke with Tori Howes and Ed Causal about why narcissists are less able to reflect on their mistakes and learn from them. Next time, in episode 87 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Tim Miller from Washington University in St. Louis about his research into therapies that target the single strands of DNA or RNA, which are the cause of many cases of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And once in the nucleus, it then sticks to a specific mRNA. And I say specific because we've designed the antisense oligo to bind to a particular mRNA to reduce the levels of that mRNA. We hope that you will join us again. 